Last week, we began to study the list of qualifications that we find here in 1 Timothy 3. The qualifications are for a church elder. And um, before we sort of do a little bit of recap here, I do want to remind you that um, as we looked at these um, elders, leaders in the church are meant to be examples in uh, the church, examples to the flock to follow. And so as we look at these things and have looked at these things, I want you to look at them in, in, in your own life. Uh, examine your, yourself in these, in these areas. Am I living up to these standards in my spiritual life? But in particular, they have to do with the qualifications of leaders in the church. Men who want to take a position in leadership in the house of God, they must fit these standards. And his moral and his spiritual character must be examined, and he must be found to be qualified according to the standards that are set out here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. We basically find a very similar list in Titus chapter 1, and we'll be looking at that uh, a bit later. But as we began our study, we found that there are six specific areas of a man's life that are to be examined. And last week, we looked at the first three areas of a man's life. And the first was his moral reputation. His moral reputation. If you look here in verse Two, it says a bishop, which is equivalent of an elder. A bishop then must be blameless. Blameless. The first qualification is really a, an overarching, all-encompassing, all-embracing qualification. All the other requirements that we read really fall under this one. And to be blameless is it, it means to not it's not able to be held above reproach. If a man were to be arrested and tried as a criminal, then he would have to be set free because there would be no charges that would stick. We called him the Teflon man last week because nothing would stick to him. A church must have blameless leadership. They must be committed to maintaining that standard of leadership because it's the house of God, which I remind you is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So important. Well, an elder must be above reproach in all the areas that we looked at last week and the, and the areas we'll look at this week. And the first area which he must be examined in was his marriage. It says the bishop is to be blameless, and then it says the husband of one wife, literally in the Greek, a one-woman man. And it refers to his marital and sexual life, not his marital status. It doesn't mean he has to be married, but the issue is about moral sexual behavior. Um, if he is married, he must be 100% faithfully committed to his wife in heart and mind and deed. He should love and desire only her. And if he fails in this area, Scripture warns that the reproach will never be taken away from that man. A man is automatically disqualified from leadership if he fails in this area. So it's a very important area, and we talked a lot about it last week. The next area we examined was his mastery of self. And there were many things that fall under that category. In fact, I broke him into two categories, the things he must be and the things he must not be. And beginning with the things that must be in verse 2, it says he must be temperate, which is a man who's self-controlled. He's self-restrained. He, he doesn't allow anything in his life that will uh, distort his judgment or negatively affect his, his conduct. He's well-balanced. He's level-headed. And the result of being temperate is the next word, sober-minded. That this means um, prudent. Some of your translations say that. Or sensible. He exercises discretion and common sense. So the temperate, sober-minded man with those two qualities will be a man of good behavior, which is the next word we saw there. And it means orderly, well-arranged. His well-ordered life 
is a result of his well-ordered mind. Quite a few translations render that word respectable. He earns the respect of others because of his orderly life. And in verse 2, we skipped over those last two words there, hospitable and able to teach. We're going to cover those today. The reason we did that is because we, those are more about his ministry, and uh, I wanted to keep these under his, the self-control area, the mastery of self. And so we looked at verse 3 about the things he must not be. So going on to verse 3, it says, all the things he not to be, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not covetous. I think these things, they speak for themselves there. He's not given to wine, means he's not a drunkard. He's not a slave to alcohol. In fact, he shouldn't be a slave to anything. In fact, he should exercise self-control in his life. He's not to be a violent man who solves problems with his fists. Rather, he's to be gentle. He's not to be quarrelsome, a man given to disputes, but rather is seeking the unity and peace that should be part of the church. And finally, he's not to be covetous. He can't be a lover of money. He needs to be a lover of people. Those are the areas that we looked at last week. Today, we're looking at the Noble Qualifications Part 2, and we're going to look at the other three areas of his life. And they are his mystery, his managed home, and his maturity. And uh, we'll look at all three of those, beginning with his ministry. And this really takes us back to verse 2, the two little words we, we sort of skipped over. And I'll start there. I'm just going to read those and read on down through the rest of the passage through verse 7 just so we understand what we're looking at, and then I'll pray, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. So there in verse 2, it says, hospitable, able to teach. Skip down to verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for the man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. We pray your spirit would be with us as we look at the uh, second half of these uh, qualifications found here in your word, Lord. And I pray that you would uh, keep our hearts and minds open to what you want to show us about ourselves, Lord, and that we would um, really seek to give our lives fully over to the power and leading of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives, to, to live in such a way as to be the example we're called to be. We pray you bless us through the reading of and study of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, we're looking at his ministry here, and that first word at the end of verse 2 is hospitable. Hospitable, philoxenos, and it means uh, generous to guests. It means uh, a lover of hospitality. We had a, a similar uh, word we looked at back in our study of Hebrews. Remember Hebrews 13, verse 2, uh, told us not to forget to entertain strangers because maybe by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels, that very interesting uh, passage. And that word there was a very similar word. Entertaining strangers means to be a, a, a lover of strangers. It's philoxenia, so it's very close to this philoxenos. And this is a command to all believers. When you go to Scripture, you find that all of us are called to be hospitable. It's a love that manifests itself by, by showing love to others, and particularly others maybe we don't know so well, within the body and without. To be a stranger lover, particularly in those days, meant to uh, put someone up for the night, to open up your home to a traveler, to perhaps even care for their needs. Our first responsibility 
responsibility, though, in caring for strangers inside and outside the church always begins to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to do good to all, but we give the priority and the focus to those in the household of God. Galatians 6.10 reminds us of that. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Remember, this whole letter is written about how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And so the focus is, here is hospitality. A person is to show if they're to be a leader in the, the church. But all of the, uh, the family of God, we, we've got to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the, the family first. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It does go outside of our immediate family. We are to love others in the world. Those, those needs that come our way, if we have an opportunity to meet those needs, we should do that. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 15, it says, See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Uh, for all. We should seek to, to do good to everyone. We have an opportunity to do good for, or um, there's a way that we can serve them. And that includes our enemies, doesn't it? Which is that's a harder thing to do, isn't it? Because Jesus said you need to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. And, and we look at that and go, wow, how do you, how do, you do that? But we have a command here to be hospitable. A stranger lover was a very important part of life in those days. In fact, it was needed, which explains why the command to be hospitable is repeated so often. 1 Peter 4.9 tells us to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. All right, I'm going to open up my house to this guy, and I'm not going to like it. I'm not, that's grumbling the whole way. We're actually to do it with joy, without grumbling, willingly willingly wanting to meet the needs of, of those we have the opportunity uh, to meet. Um, Romans 12, 13 says to be distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. That's, that's for all of us. That, in fact, that's hospitality for the believers, meeting the needs of the saints. But it also isn't opening up your home to do that. Now, when we look at what we're studying, particularly here in 1 Timothy 3, um, one cannot serve in the church as an elder unless he is a hospitable person. Titus 1 says the same thing. And what's interesting, and I know I made a correlation to chapter 5 last week regarding widows. We're going to look at that as well because it's also a qualification for a widow. If she is going to be supported by the church financially, she must have proved, proved herself to be a hospitable person. Look at chapter 5 verse uh, 9. First Timothy, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man. Verse 10, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has um, gently followed every good work. There's a long list of things. This woman, hopefully she's done these things. And one of those is to, is to lodge strangers. She's to be a, a hospitable a woman. The door of believers' homes is to be an open door. I think a lot of times the men look at their homes and, uh, it's my castle, and the, the drawbridge is up. But the drawbridge is supposed to be down. Our home is not our, our castle. It's not where we just sort of close in and we keep the outside world out, we actually are to open our doors for others. Remember, um, it's, it's, it's an outward demonstration of a, 
of an open heart. And we want people to see that we have an open heart. We do have an open heart. We, we love all people. Um, it's, an, I think, an attitude of loving people sacrificially, which we put on our shirts. We put on our slogan, right? We love people sacrificially. And so in particular for an elder, he's not to be unapproachable. He has to be available to people. He has to have his home and life open to all so that that allows his true character to be manifest to all. He's going to be a leader in the church. So hospitality is a key, key qualification and certainly is is something we all should be showing. The second thing you see there in verse 2 is able to teach. Able to teach. Didacticos. And it means apt and skillful in teaching. It's only used here and in 2 Timothy 2.24. So only two places, a rare, a rare word here. And this is a very particular point, able to teach, that specifically for the elders, but also it's the only qualification that has to do with giftedness. This is the teaching gift that is given by the Holy Spirit. One must have the gift given to them by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us this little list in verses 28 to 29. Paul writes this, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. There they are. After that, miracles and then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And then he asks this question, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? The answer being no, they're not. They're not all those things. They're not all teachers because some are teachers because some have been given the gift of teaching. And God has given teachers to the church. They're third on the list. God wants teachers in the church. And it's the one thing that sets an elder apart from being a deacon. As we go through the deacon list um, following this in chapter three here, that is not a qualification for a deacon. It's a qualification for an elder. And it's the primary duty of the elder. We're to shepherd the flock of God, but primarily we do that by administering the word of God. Just look at chapter four here. Paul's writing to a young Timothy, a young uh, pastor um, here, if you want to put it that way. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse six, he says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Do you see that? Teach them, instruct them, nourish them in the doctrine. Look ahead at verse uh, 11. These things command and teach. Look ahead at verse 13. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. There it is again. Also in verse 16, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And 2 Timothy repeats it. Titus repeats it as well. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. You hear that over and over again. It's about the teaching. It's about the doctrine. Now, let's put these things together. Why does God desire teachers in the church. A lot of times we just think about teachers being in the schools. And it's 
pastors are in the, the, the church. And hopefully we, we ironed that out a bit for you because I showed you pastors aren't actually used as a title for leaders in the church. Elders are, and we're to be gifted at teaching. Why does God want teachers in the church? Can I take you back to Ephesians? Keep your finger here, but make a left-hand turn to the book of Ephesians. The great commission given to the church in terms of the outside world is to evangelize them, is it not? We're to, to spread the gospel. We're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's also a mission for the church within the church. And this is, this is primary. And I think so many people jump to the other one and miss this one. You actually don't get the other one unless you do this one. Ephesians 4.11, so important. It says this, and he gave himself, I'm sorry, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did God do that? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, just stop there for a second. <laughs> God has given pastors and teachers in the church. Why? So that, that we would all be equipped for the work of ministry, so that you would be equipped to do the work of ministry, and that you would be able to edify others in the body of Christ, but also that we would all come to the unity of the knowledge, to a perfect man, that we be unified in doctrine, in truth, in understanding. This is so true because as you go on to verse 14, it says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So many churches focus on evangelism. We've got to get out there and spread the word, spread the word, but they don't teach their people. I have to tell you that is misplaced. That is wrong. It starts here. Why did he give teachers? To evangelize? No, to teach the people so they could do the work of ministry. This is where it begins. So you have a lot of immature people out in the world who are not to the full stature of the measure of Christ going out trying to tell people how to follow Christ and they don't have a clue themselves. This is a big problem. Teachers have to be in the church and we have to grow together to the fullness of the stature, to the measure of the perfect man, Jesus Christ, so that we can go out and evangelize this lost world. Teachers are so very, very important to the church. You remember the entire reason for this letter by Paul is that the church is the house of God and it's the pillar and ground of the truth. We got to know the truth. Do you know the truth? Would you be able to share the truth in a proper way? Now, Titus addresses this qualification as well, but he doesn't use the exact same word, didactikos. He doesn't use that able to teach word, but rather he gives us a description. And I think that helps fully flesh out the, the, the purpose here. It's Titus 1.9. I have it on the screen for you. He says this about an elder, that he should be holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, there you go. There's a more a lengthier description. So first, an elder must be holding fast to the faithful word. This is what this means. He must be committed, holding fast, to the historic, apostolic, orthodox, biblical doctrine. 
He cannot be a man into these newfangled ideas, these new doctrines that are coming into the world, or as Paul put it at the beginning of our uh, letter, going back to 1 Timothy here, uh, into fables and endless genealogies. Remember? That's how he started this whole thing. You can't be into all this nonsense that, that starts sweeping around, but actually instead holding fast, holding fast to the faithful word as it has been taught. Remember Paul's warning to those Ephesian elders when he met them was in Acts 20, 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. It's about what they're teaching, what they're speaking, perverse things. And so the qualification for eldership is for the protection of the church. And so an elder is not simply to be good at teaching, but a teacher of sound doctrine. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter if they're charismatic, they're good in the pulpit, they, they entertain you with fancy ideas and stories. They have to be good at sound doctrine. That is what it's about. He must be an elder that has been taught. The Bible is the training manual for all of us, but especially, especially for spiritual leaders. Scripture should be our primary source of education. God's Word tells us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We go to God's Word. It begins there. And I just wanted to look at this just for a moment longer. I might be milking this a bit, I know. But we could just go, oh, they're to be able to teach and move on. There's just so much more to it. How is a, a prospective elder to be taught? Many might say, well, you have to go to seminary. You need to go to college. You need to go to school. Like, those things are good. But that is not what God instituted. You won't go and find in Scripture, and so God set up the seminaries. God set up something else. It's called the family. Have you heard of it? Because it's going away. It's the family. The family is to be the primary Christian educational institution on the planet. That's what God established. Man established different things, but God gave the family. Deuteronomy 6, 6 to 7, God's words. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. It begins in the home. That's where it begins. And the mandate to teach these things to our children, and not just to teach them facts, not just to, they're not to go and be a, a, able to quote the whole Bible, but they should have an understanding of what the Bible's about. But to see it in your lives. Are you living that out? Do you really believe it? And that mandate to instruct your children, it's just repeated all throughout the scripture, isn't it? All throughout the wisdom proverbs, fathers talking to their sons, listen to the instruction of your fathers. You come to the New Testament, and Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 says, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. It begins in the home. That's where it starts. Fathers training their children. That word training we've looked at before, disciplining them. It takes that. It takes discipline training them in the admonition of the Lord. And I think we've gone away from the family being that sort of institution today. Paul reminds Timothy quite a bit here of his own upbringing. 
because Paul was aware of the importance of it being taught in the family home. Just look at uh, 2 Timothy 1.5. I have it on the screen here for you. It says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. I know your upbringing, your grandmother and your mother. They knew it. They had the faith. And the truth is, the, va- the vast majority of theological students that go to the seminaries today come from Christian homes. Yes, you do have those rare ones who are just, um, you know, living whatever kind of life and the Lord just grab them and turn them around and they, they want to go study, but the majority of them come from Christian homes because it began there and they just wanted to further their study. Again, Paul says to this young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, but you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew Timothy knew knew those things from his childhood. Folks, don't give up on your kids. Teach it in the home. Live it in the home. The home is to be the primary educational institution of God's word on the planet. Second, if the church is staying true to its its role as a place of teaching true apostolic doctrine, then elders would have been taught, hopefully, by uh, God's word by gifted teachers throughout their entire life. I learned from so many gifted teachers in my life. The early church, according to Acts 2.42, was about teaching the apostles' doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That was how that began, and that's how that's to continue. You think of later on when Barnabas um, moves on up to the uh, church in Antioch, and uh, the Lord is, is multiplying that church. He's just adding to their number to the point where he can't handle it anymore. He goes to Tarsus to find Saul. And he brings Saul back with him to Antioch so that they could both minister. And in um, Acts eleven twenty six, we're told what they do there. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, why were they first called Christians there? Because they were taught to be like Christ. They taught them to be like Christ. And the people looking at these these new believers said, you know, they kind of talk like Jesus, and they kind of look like Jesus, and they kind of live like Jesus. Baby baby Christ, that's Christians. They started calling them Christians because they were taught those things. How can we really be Christians if we start ditching the teaching? So many churches are doing that. Little, Little talks, little fun, little anecdotes and stories. And there's churches full of... Of, of people who have no idea what God's word actually says. I think a third place, elders must be committed to teaching themselves. They should be self-taught. They should be picking up God's word to learn the great deep truths of his word through consistent study, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit will do the rest, won't he? You just allow the Holy Spirit to educate you. So elders here being able to teach, it's much more than just to be good at teaching, isn't it? They're both guardians of and teachers of sound doctrine. All right, but we hit on that one enough. Let's look at the next one. The next area of his life 
is his managed home. And now we'll skip down to verse 4 because we covered verse 3 last week. Verse 4, he should be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, these are standards for married men who have children. They're not commands to get married and have children, just like the one about the, the, the man of one wife. And how do we really know that? I mean, is that really what he's saying? Well, getting married may be under your control, but um, having children, ultimately, that's in the hands of the Lord. You may be doing everything that's biologically necessary to produce a child, but ultimately, it's the Lord who opens the womb. Single men and childless married men can be pastors and elders. This is just speaking of, of men. If they have children in the home, there is a good place to go and look. Because remember, it's about examining. You're putting a person in leadership. Where can you look for in his life? And Paul's just saying, well, if he's married, look at his, look at his marriage relationship. If he's got a home and, and kids, look at his kids. Look at his home. That's what he's doing here. And as we look at this, I think you could see the reason why looking at a home is such a big thing. Look at verse 5 again. If a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Their house is in shambles. There's no leadership there. It's obvious he's unqualified to lead in the church. In fact, to rule his own house well, that word rule, proistemi, is to superintend or to preside over, to care for, or, or give attention to the home. There should be constant management of the home by the leader. The Puritans called the family household the little church. The little church. Because to them, that's the place you look. And the idea is this. If he can't shepherd or manage the little church, his own house, then what makes him think he can shepherd the big church? God's church. In fact, the word here for house is oikos, which means house. And the same word used in verse 15, house of God. It's the house. It's the little house and it's his house. The man who fails at managing the family oikos is disqualified from, from leading the church oikos. He must have a reputation for providing for the needs of his family. And that means financially, yes, uh, emotionally, and spiritually. I think a lot of men are good at the, the financial. I just go do my job. I bring, in, I bring in hope and the bacon. Now I'm going to go and kick up my feet. You're missing the other two. There should be emotional support and guidance and spiritual as well. And Paul here gives a key measurement for evaluating a man's household. And, and this, is, this is the tricky one here. He says his children. Look at his children. Having his children in submission, it says, with all reverence. A man who rules his own house well is a man who has children who are obedient and submit to his leadership. He says, you need to look at the children. Do they respect him enough to submit to his leadership? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that you have to have perfect children that never disobey. Perfect kids that never kick off or never say something disrespectful to you because, let's face it, none of us would be qualified. Not speaking about you, son. You're perfect. I'm just kidding. <laughs> The point is this, does he take action? The kids will disobey. They're born 
imperfect, shocker, they're born sinners. But they need the leadership, don't they? They need the father come in and say, hey, that's not going to happen here, and here's why that's not going to happen here. Does he take action? Do you remember Eli in the Old Testament? He had some wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and, uh, and boy, they were wicked guys. And God gave him a prophecy of what he would do, and he told that prophecy to Samuel, the prophet. In 1 Samuel 3.13, this is what he says, For I have told him, speaking of Eli, that I will judge his house forever. Whoa for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Now, when you go read it, go read for yourself, because we don't have time today. When you go read it, um, he had a talk with them. He wouldn't have had a talk. Sons, this is not good. You shouldn't be doing this. That's as far as it went. I think a lot of parents like to have the talk, but it needs to go further. He did not restrain them, and his house was judged forever because he did not restrain his sons. So while kids may disobey, here's what he's saying. They may not be in constant rebellion because it shows your lack of leadership. If they're in constant rebellion, you're not doing something right, and you're not doing something about it. They must demonstrate to their fathers submission, and not just unwillingly, not be begrudgingly. It says here, with reverence, semnates, with respect or, or dignity. There must be re respect there. You don't just get them, oh, fine, I'm going to do this. And sometimes, sometimes they're going to do that. But what you're working on here is, is them to understand your place of authority. They're not simply to give in to us as parents, but they're to honor us. That's a command. Um, Ephesians 6 Verse 1 says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. So let me just insert a tiny little bit of our biblical parenting, if I could. Look for every opportunity, don't I? How do you get your children to reverence or honor you? Is that something that you can force upon them? Bible tells us how to do it. First is that you must exercise the authority that God has given to you to discipline your children. It begins with discipline. Disobedience must be met with immediate negative consequences, not talks. Talks will get you nowhere. If you're talking about five, six-year-old, you cannot reason with a five or six-year-old. A talk will not help them, no matter how smart they sound. Discipline will help them. I can't explain it. The Bible says to do it, and it works. It changes the heart. Now, we live in a relatively free country to practice our Christian faith, but not completely. Do you know that you can't actually exercise your right as a parent to discipline your child legally? So in one sense, you are called to disobey God, to honor the government. Are we ever to do that? Why do we do it? Why? It's fear. We are called to discipline our kids, despite what the government says. You have to train them to obedience. If you're not training them to obedience, you're actually training them to disobedience because they recognize there's no consequences. I get away with this every time. And by the way, they're not going to respect you. And when they come 13, 14, 15, you got no tools in your bag to help that. You're training them, especially in those early stages, to what? To accept your 
authority. Let me just briefly say what acceptance of authority is. It's obedient, willing submission. That's what you're working on in those early years. That's why parenting is hard work. It's difficult. We always say it's inconvenient. It's inconvenient. It might mean you might have to leave a certain event or program because they're so disobedient. Bummer for you, but your child's heart is at stake. You're trying to correct heart attitudes. Rejection of authority is when they challenge your authority, when they delay their response and say, well, I'll do it when I want to do it. When they excuse rebellion, and sometimes we do it ourselves, we excuse rebellion. We, we play it off as something else. Well, it really wasn't rebellion. And I think when they submit without honor, you want to watch for those things. So here, this is obviously a requirement for an elder. He must have his children under control. But this is for all of us. This is so important to understand. That's the first thing you do. You get them to exercise, um, understand your authority. Second, you make it clear what's expected. That's what obedience looks like, son. This is what we, we want to, to see. And you set clear boundaries, and you, you make the instruction clear, and you make it reasonable for their age and for their abilities. And then you, you stick to that, which really is the third thing. You stay consistent on it. You say what you mean, and you mean what you say. I remember seeing a, a girl just kicking off at Disneyland once, and the mom said, what, you keep doing that, we're just going to leave Disneyland. Now, I knew that lady spent $600 to come to Disneyland. There was no way she was going to leave Disneyland. And that kid knew it as well. Don't make empty threats. Don't say things that, they know it. You're just playing a game, a manipulation game. It doesn't do anything. They must come to trust you and your word. That's what you're trying to get them to understand. When I say these things, I mean it. And so stick with those things. Ultimately, you want them to willingly submit to you because they love the intimate relationship that they have with you. And you know, just like we have with our Heavenly Father, don't you, don't you know, when, don't you feel it when you sin, when you're, you're, you're not in li- your relationship is sort of severed, isn't it? It doesn't feel good. You, you want that. And the same happens in our earthly relationships. You've got you've to keep short accounts. You've got to make sure those things are, are buttoned up and so that that respect can happen. The fourth thing is that motivation must uh, teach them, uh, uh, sorry, the motivation must be to teach them the urgency and priority, I would say it that way, of obeying God's word. That is super huge because then you wonder why when they're 13, 14, 15, they're, they're, they're disobeying God's word. They're walking away from uh, the church. What they need to see in those early years is the privileges that come with salvation, that come with knowing Christ and obeying him. And ultimately, we want them to obey for the gospel's sake. Ultimately, there's a soul at stake. When you read Titus's list of qualifications, he actually adds this in Titus 1.6, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. That's believing children is what he says. Wow, how could you, how could you ask that? Just listen to this from an elder has the task of leading people to justification sanctification, service in the church, in the house of God. And they must be able to demonstrate to some level that they're capable of doing that. So you might say, well, then what if they aren't married? And what if they don't, they don't have children? Then I would say you need to see that in their ability to teach. Did they understand the doctrines? Could they communicate those things? But if they have children and they have a home, Paul says, you need to go look there. There's a great place to examine their life. How are they doing in the home? Now, I know it's a convicting area uh, for all of us. And again, it's not uh, perfect children that we're looking for here, right? But we're, we don't want to see rebellious 
insubordinate kids? Does he have control over his home? Let's look at the final area. The final area is his maturity. His maturity. And it says this in verse 6, not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. There's two things here I want to break down out of his maturity. The first is his humility. That's the first thing we see here in verse 6. A novice would be a new believer, and so he can't be a new believer. In fact, that word novice is neophutos. It's a fun word. It means newly planted. Newly planted. Makes sense, doesn't it? Metaphorically, it fits. He can't be this newly planted little Christian. Why? Because he's still tender. He's just been newly planted. His roots aren't going down very deep. And so that man cannot be in a place of, of leadership. He, he, he may be spiritual, he may be knowledgeable, he may be talented, he may be charismatic, he may be uh, zealous for good works and serving the, the church, but he cannot be an elder because he's newly planted. He's spiritually immature. To be mature requires time, doesn't it? You go buy the mature cheddar cheese, it didn't mature the day before, right? It's, it's, it's taken a long time. And if it's, if it's green, it's, it's too much time. You don't, don't eat that. But mature, maturity require, requires time, and I think for an elder, also experience. There's got to be time to have that as well. So an elder must come from the spiritually mature of the congregation. So I would say it this way, whatever that local congregation looks like. For, for Titus on the Isle of Crete, it probably looked a lot different. And so that's why we see some slightly different qualifications. He's like, what, what are you playing with? What are the people God gave you? Look at the spiritual maturity of those in your, in your context and in your congregation. God's looking for those spiritually mature people. And the danger of all this, if you put a young believer up there, is that it says he may be puffed up with pride. That Greek word means to, to puff up like a cloud of smoke. A new convert who rises to a place of leadership too quickly, he's in real grave danger. He might become arrogant. He might become prideful. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Destruction, that's a, that's a weighty word. I very rarely use the word destruction. We say, oh, he, before a fall. No, the word says destroyed. Wow. But an example is given to us here. It says, less being puffed with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as who? The devil. In fact, the devil is mentioned twice in these last two verses. That was, that was the, um, the fall of Satan. He fell because of pride. Satan, when you read Ezekiel 28, Satan's described in all these beautiful terms. He's, he's the seal of per perfection. He's full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He's the anointed cherub. He, he walked on the, the holy mountain of God. And you look at it, wow, who, who is this? This amazing angelic being. And we find out that it's actually satan himself and because of his pride god casts him down we find it out in verse 17 ezekiel 28 17 your heart was lifted up because of your beauty you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor i cast you to the ground i laid you before kings that they might gaze at you what paul is saying is that satan is the living example of what can happen to a leader who succumbs to pride but what's a mark of spiritual maturity? It's humility. Jesus, Jesus had that, didn't he? 
He had all these young punks probably feeling like, wow, you know, we're, we're a part of Jesus' clan. This is amazing. And then he walks in and he washes all their feet, blows their minds. And in the same room, they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest. <laughs> Just a, like, how do, they, how do they miss these things? But Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 11, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That takes time. That takes maturity. You learn those things through time and through experience. The second thing that he mentions here is not just um, his humility in relation to his maturity, but also his testimony. Verse 7 says, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So not only do we look for the qualities to be manifested in his personal life and in his church, um, his marriage and all those things, his home, but also outside the church. What kind of testimony does he have outside the church? It must be a good testimony. And if it's not, he may, it says, fall into reproach, which really brings us full circle all the way back to the very first qualification we looked at. He must be above reproach, blameless. Remember that first one? And now here in this place, if he is not careful, he's, he's a, a new believer or he's not had the experience and, and time to gain a, a good testimony as a believer in the community, then he can fall into reproach. He could be blamed. He couldn't be blamed. He might be blamed. He might be, bring reproach or disgrace upon himself, but ultimately upon who? The church in Christ. That's what he's worried about here. We are all to have a good testimony. All of us have to have that outside the church. We must have some sort of observable uh, good works that we could see in terms of how, how do they handle themselves in the rest of the world. 1 Peter 2.12 says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. You might have someone who's come from a, a, a terrible, wicked life, and he's got that circle of friends, and they're going to know him for a certain lifestyle. And he, when he's saved, it takes a while for that to go away. There's going to be time for maturity, time for growth, so that they can begin to see this man is different. And so if you were able to meet them and say, hey, what about this guy? They would say, yeah, he's different. <laughs> he used to do this and do this and do this, but hey, he's not the same guy. And that's what you'd want to hear. But if this man, you would find out that he has a sinful reputation outside the community, he's a dishonest businessman, um, he's a womanizer, uh, he, he, he's an insensitive, unreasonably harsh boss, whatever it might be, um, it says here that he can fall into reproach, and that is a snare of the devil. Last time we saw the condemnation of the devil, he, he was condemned because of his pride, but here, this is a trap. This is a trap. It's the snare of the devil. He says the man falls into a trap, a trap that's been set for him and for the church. He must have had time to mature to the point where he has had uh, time to maintain a good testimony, that he's lived a, a, a life, a blameless life in terms of her, others who watch his life, of one who loves the Lord. An outsider's opinion of a leader's character affects the evangelistic witness of the entire church. That's a huge thing. Ultimately, the, uh, the gospel is at stake, and Satan likes nothing more than, than to disgrace God's work 
right? And, and also his, his people. So he sets a trap. We have to be careful. And that's why these guidelines are here. There's really so much at stake. And so many people just mess around with these things, like we saw in chapter 2, and say, well, it doesn't mean this, doesn't mean this. Do you see how important it is? Satan has laid all kinds of snares all around. He wants the church to crumble. He wants the church to fail. In fact, you know what he wants? He wants the church to look more like the world. And when the church looks like the world, the church has nothing to offer the world. We're to look different than the world. The leadership is to look different than the world, and the people are to look different than the world. And so far from these qualifications being sort of, I just can't believe who would put the... God is protecting his house. (laughs) It's his home. It's his family. And he gets to set the rules. And so we look at this and we go, wow, this is... These are hard, hard things for for leaders to, to live up to. It's sobering. It should be a sobering thing. It should remind us, wow, we really have got to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. But also, it's a challenge for everyone, isn't it? As the leaders go, it's often been said, so goes the church. And so we need godly leaders in every church, and we need godly churches who would even put themselves into these qualifications. Help me to be a temperate, sober-minded kind of person. Help me to, if I've got problems with, with alcohol or love of money or these things, help me to get rid of those things. Help me to make Christ the center of my life. That's what this is ultimately about. Are these, are these men who ultimately love Christ and his people more than all these other things? That's what he's looking for. Next time we come back, we'll be looking at qualifications for deacons, and we'll, we'll talk quite a bit through that. That's got some interesting things as well. Let's just pray. Thank the Lord for our time. God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for, Lord, even lists like this. We see all these things that you ask of your people, you require of those leading your, your church. Lord, it's so important. We must remember that it's your word. It's you speaking to us. These are your heart's desires because it's your church. Jesus Christ died for the church. It's his. It's his bride. And so we pray, Lord, we would just be more sober-minded as we contemplate these things, that we would be reminded of, of the great price that you paid for this family, and that we would do everything we could to protect it the way that you've asked us to. Lord, we love you so much. We love your church. We're so grateful that you've called us into this house of God, that we can be part of this household, and we could know you, our Heavenly Father. What an amazing thing the household of faith really is. And God, we're just grateful for your infinite wisdom in creating such a thing. You could have just saved us and whisked us off the planet, but you kept us here for such a great purpose. And may we be committed to that purpose. May we remember, Lord, how important even teaching is, that we're to grow into the fullness of the measure of stature of Jesus Christ himself, that perfect man. Lord, one day we'll be perfect just like him. We'll see him face to face. Amazing. Can't wait for that day. We love you. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing a closing song.